Thank you for joining us today and taking the time out of your evening to participate in our music skills workshop on advances in robotic prostatectomy. As this skill session includes not only our own music members, but is open to all, I would like to start by briefly introducing um, music as an organization and some of the work that we do. Uh, music is a consortium of urologists and urology practices throughout the state that aims to improve the quality and cost efficiency of urologic care provided to patients in Michigan. It includes not just urologists, but relies heavily on an entire team, including medical assistants, nurses, advanced practice providers, staff, data abstractors, and patient advocates to guide and implement our quality improvement projects. While we are focused on prostate cancer today, music has grown to include quality improvement initiatives in both kidney stone and renal mass care. And our goal now is to raise the standard of urologic care in Michigan and elsewhere, given our integration of new practices, including the University of North Carolina, Montefiore, and the University of Kentucky. We consist of more than 260 urologists across 46 practices that represent more than 90% of the urologists in the state of Michigan. We are guided by a number of patient advocates and the foundation of our success is measuring what we do, resulting in more than 135,000 cases entered into a real world prospective registry. Today, I'm excited to share that we have a diverse group of speakers and panelists who are true experts in the field and will share their unique perspectives. We thank all those involved today for giving up their time to share their experience. Today, we have an outstanding program. Our aim is to identify and summarize the evolution of surgical techniques used during robotic prostatectomy to improve outcomes, specifically early continence. You'll hear about how types of bladder neck reconstruction, urethral length, Rocco stitch, and other technical modifications can impact these outcomes. And then this will be followed by a discussion on single port surgery and its potential advantages and pitfalls. Finally, our session will end with our keynote speaker, Dr. Kirsten Green, Chair of Urology at the University of Virginia, discussing the Retzia sparing approach and her own experience. I thank you again for joining us, and I will turn it over to Dr. Alice Samarjan, a urologic oncologist at St. Joseph Mercy Hospital in Ann Arbor, and a co-director of the Prostate Cancer Programs in Music to kick us off. Thank you, Arvin. So I'll be discussing modifications to improve early urinary continence after robotic radical prostatectomy. Preservation of urinary continence after prostatectomy is one of the most important outcomes for the surgery. However, the question always remains how to achieve good urinary continence. We know that certain patient disease and surgeon factors have an effect, but we sought to dig a little deeper and see if there's some common technique that's being used by surgeons to achieve better urinary continence outcomes. We distributed a survey to music radical prostatectomy surgeons asking about their use of various techniques sought to modulate continence. These include bladder neck reconstruction, bladder neck sparing, posterior reconstruction, anterior urethral suspension, and bladder wall suspension. We received responses from 36 surgeons at 15 practices. Uh, this is the social continence data amongst our survey respondents. Each bar represents a distinct surgeon but the surgeon number from one graph to the other is not necessarily the same position. On the left is variation of each surgeon's three-month social continence outcomes, and on the right is a six-month data. Social continence is defined as use of zero to one pads. Music defines a goal of 75% social continence by three months 
and 90% by six months. Among our respondents, there's a wide range of social continence rates, with many achieving the music goal by six months. There's more variation in early social continence. So we asked how often surgeons use these techniques. Each bar refers to a different technique. The green bar refers to use uh, all or most of the time, and the blue to occasional or rare use, and the gray is never or not familiar with the technique. You can see that bladder neck reconstruction and bladder neck sparing are the most performed techniques. We can deduce that if surgeons are unable to perform bladder neck sparing, then they will use reconstruction to recapitulate the bladder neck. Anterior urethral suspension and Rocco stitch are used by about 20 to 35% of surgeons most of the time, and 50 to 60% of surgeons at least sometimes. Bladder wall suspension and retzius sparing procedures are rarely used by music surgeons. Although retzius sparing surgery is an entirely different approach, we wanted to get an idea of how many music surgeons do this. There's a low proportion of surgeons who always do retzius sparing and up to 20% who've done it occasionally. We also asked surgeons to rank what factors they felt are most important to achieving good continence. Far and away, maximizing the urethral length was the most important factor to most surgeons. This was followed by bladder neck sparing and reconstruction. Other factors ranked included the use of Kegel exercises and pelvic floor physical therapy, nerve sparing, and having a normal BNI. We then looked to see if there's a difference in trends of techniques performed between surgeons who have good three-month continence rates and those who don't. This graph demonstrates the techniques of the top five performing survey respondents. As with the last graph, the green bar refers to the listed technique being used most of the time, and the blue refers to occasional or rare use. In the five high-performing surgeons, bladder neck reconstruction and sparing were the most employed techniques. Anterior urethral and bladder suspension and retzia sparing were not done, and Rocco stitch was used by two out of the five surgeons with one doing it in most cases. When compared to the five surgeons with the lowest three-month continence, there really is no difference in terms of techniques that are used. Again, all surgeons in this category use bladder neck sparing and reconstruction. Three out of five also used anterior urethral suspension, which did not seem to make a difference in early continence, at least in this group. And there was rare use of Rocco stitch and retzia sparing. This goes to show that we still don't know what technique or factors are associated with better early continence. Most likely, these outcomes have more to do with surgeon experience or surgical nuance embedded within these techniques. So we'll now review some of the technique modifications as well as other factors thought to modify urinary continence after prostatectomy, including pelvic floor muscle exercise programs and maximizing your urethral length. Bladder neck sparing uh, came up pretty high on the list of music urologists in terms of continence control, as you've seen. As a reminder, 95% of survey respondents did this technique with 60% doing it most or all of the time. Bladder neck sparing is done by starting anteriorly and using a combination of monopolar cautery and blunt dissection. The goal is to identify the circular muscle fibers of the prostatic urethra. The prostate's divided from the bladder neck at this point, and this keeps the bladder neck narrow. The aim is for the diameter of the bladder neck to be similar to that of the urethra. After a bladder neck sparing procedure, there should be no need for bladder neck reconstruction. It can be difficult to do this type of procedure in patients with large prostates, those with median lobes, or in patients whose disease is at or near the bladder neck. 
This study represents a large single, ser single center series of patients who had undergone bladder neck sparing or bladder neck reconstruction during prostatectomy. Factors contributing to the use of bladder neck sparing included prostate size and the use of nerve sparing. There was no significant difference between the groups in terms of pathologic tumor stage or Gleason score. Bladder neck sparing was shown to contribute to significantly shorter time to catheter removal, as well as higher pad free rates seven days post catheter removal. However, there was no difference in continence rates at three months or one year between the two groups. Importantly, bladder neck sparing was not seen to affect positive margin rates or biochemical recurrence rates. The graph on the right shows biochemical recurrence-free survival for up to four years post-op. The green line shows bladder neck sparing biochemical recurrence rates, and the blue line shows bladder neck reconstruction biochemical recurrence rates. The difference is not significantly different between the two groups, but as you can see, the biochemical recurrence-free survival is actually less in the bladder neck sparing group. Posterior reconstruction or Rocco stitch is a technique that's used to realign the supportive structures of the posterior rhabdosphincter. The purpose is to provide attention-free anastomosis as well as to recreate the posterior support of the urethra. So this is done in two layers. Uh, the first layer you can see on the left side of the screen, um, this is attaching the free edge of the remaining denombiase fascia that's reapproximated to the posterior rhabdosphincter. And then the second layer on the right side of the screen pulls the posterior bladder neck to the previously reconstructed median refae. The urethra is not involved in this repair and the stitch should not be placed laterally uh, so as not to compromise the neurovascular bundle. So this is a randomized clinical trial that was recently published, which looked at the urinary continence rates between men who had posterior reconstruction done at the time of prostatectomy versus those who didn't. All procedures were done by a single experienced surgeon. 152 patients were included and randomized and urinary continence is defined as no pad use. So at three months, 58.5% of patients had achieved continence in the posterior reconstruction group as opposed to 43.1% in the control group. There was also a difference in terms of timing to recovery with continence being achieved at 64 days in the posterior reconstruction group uh, as opposed to 106 days in the control group. And importantly, there was no difference in pathologic outcomes or surgical complications. So I'll direct your attention to the graph that's on the bottom of the screen. On the left side of the graph is time and days. There are two definitions of urinary control that they used here uh, with no pad use um, as one defini definition on the left side of the screen and zero to one pads on the right. So there's a difference between the groups um, for the outcome of zero pads per day with the higher continence rates in the posterior construction group at 30 and 90 days. But beyond six months, urinary continence rates are similar between both groups when the outcome is defined as zero and zero to one pads. So posterior rhabdosphincter reconstruction is safe and increases early recovery of urinary continence. Bladder neck reconstruction refers to the practice of tapering down the bladder neck in the event that the bladder neck is wider than the urethra. It's meant to recapitulate the shape of the native bladder neck and decrease suture tension at the anastomosis. There are many ways to reconstruct the bladder neck. In the first picture, all the way on the left of the screen, it shows an anterior reconstruction, closing the bladder neck anteriorly after the anastomosis has been done. The second photo shows a posterior reconstruction, which is similar to the anterior reconstruction, but it's done at the posterior aspect of the bladder. And the third photo shows a lateral pair with suture lines at the three and nine o'clock position followed by anastomosis. And there's no difference that's been observed in terms of continence outcomes for these three types of reconstruction. 
Another technique involves affixing the uh, periurethral tissues, including the DVC, to the periosteum of the pelvic bone. This is employed by 60% of the survey respondents, with 35% of them doing it all or most of the time. So the idea is to stabilize the urethra. It is meant to provide anatomical support and does not allow the urethra to retract after it's cut. In studies, this has been shown to aid in early continence, but does not seem to affect long-term continence. One of the other ideas that was thought to contribute to better continence outcomes among survey respondents was the use of pelvic floor muscle exercises, either self-directed or in a formal program. The picture shows the muscle groups that are involved in continence, including the striated urethral sphincter, the puborectalis, and the bulbocaphronosis. They're all thought to have a role in constricting the urethra. Increasing endurance and strength of pelvic floor striated muscle is thought to be uh, compensatory for the loss of smooth muscle after radical prostatectomy. These exercises can be done preoperatively or postoperatively. In the preoperative setting, it's thought that increase of muscle mass and neuromuscular reserve will help regain continence after the procedure. Patients should start at least four weeks prior to surgery, and this is often self-directed Kegel exercises. A review of seven studies showed 36% improvement at three months without any difference at six months. Additionally, patients can do pelvic floor physical therapy or self-guided therapy after surgery. Uh, it's been difficult to show the benefit of pelvic floor physical therapy given the heterogeneous nature of the programs, um, compliance and timing. Uh, but with appropriate technique of three sets of 10 reps daily, they have been shown to have improved short and long-term outcomes. Um, pelvic floor exercises can start after catheter removal. And finally, one of the most important factors uh, to return of continence is maximizing the urethral length. This was agreed upon by most of our survey respondents. This involves peeling back the apical prostate to leave as much length of urethra as possible. And it can be difficult in patients who have concern for disease at the apex. The graph on the right of the screen shows uh, continence rates when comparing techniques to maximize urethral length alone or in combination with other techniques versus other techniques alone without maximizing urethral length. The blue and the green show excellent early continence recovery with addition of maximal urethral length pre preservation. And finally, a plug for our video library. Uh, as most of you know, this is an open source library of over 60 de-identified cases from 31 music surgeons. Uh, there have been enhancements to the video library recently. Now you can search by surgeon level uh, outcome data, including continence, sexual function, margin status, uh, amongst other things. And additionally, you can click to navigate straight to the part of the procedure that you're interested in seeing. Thank you so much for your attention. Please join us for a live uh, Q&A session. Great, thank you everyone for joining us today. And thank you, Alice, for a really great summary on all the different techniques that have been employed and how, uh, how they potentially modify rates of continence. Uh, we're gonna transition into our uh, discussion panel. And uh, I would uh, ask that the participants who are in the Hopin platform, you please uh, enter any questions into the Q&A tab. So you click on the Q&A tab, uh, you enter any questions there and we'll open the discussion to our panel. Uh, our panel today, I'd like to invite uh, uh, Dr. Judy, Julie Brownell, doctors, uh, Dr. Eduardo Clear, Dr. Adam Gadzinski, and Dr. Alice Sumerjan. Thank you, and I'm really pleased to call, call them both uh, colleagues and also partners in music. 
And so uh, we'll keep an eye on the chat for any questions. But what I would like to ask the panel is, is that you know, when I started doing prostatectomy, um, I feel like my, my technique has been really a Frankenstein procedure of what I've been taught amongst different surgeons and different techniques. And even since I started, my, my technique has continued to kind of evolve over time. And I'd like to ask the panelists, what, how has your technique evolved uh, over time in terms of where you started with prostatectomy, uh, what additions or changes that you made and why you did those in terms of how it would potentially impact your outcomes? So Alice, maybe because you finished off the session, I'll lead it off with you and you let me know what your thoughts are in terms of how, you, how, you, how you've gotten going. Yeah, thank you. So I've been in practice for four years. Um, I would say that I probably haven't changed, you know, adding a technique or subtracting a certain technique, you know, by name really. But I think what's really changed in my practice is having a better understanding for, uh, you know, the, the anatomy, the relationship of, you know, the nerves, the sphincter. It's, uh, I think it's just something that grows with appreciation over time. Um, so I would say that's probably the, the biggest takeaway. I think, you know, what I thought I was doing before, I know now I'm, I'm doing better. Great. Thank you. And I, I can, I'm going to ask actually Dr. Uh, Dr. Claire the same question. I think you've probably done more prostatectomies than all the rest of us combined here. Um, and you have probably seen the evolution of a lot of these techniques from uh, from early on. How has your technique changed? Well, I think Dr. Peabody has been in practice longer than me, so. Uh, I mean on the panel, in the panel, in the panel. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> um, well, so, I mean, I learned prostatectomy, you know, the, the open way and then transitioned to the robotic uh, approach. Um, so, um, it, the, 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 the mainstay, I would say, of what I, I have kept on doing since I started is maximizing uh, urethral preservation and making sure that I bring the apical notch uh, proximally uh, to obtain uh, maximal uh, striated urethral sphincter length. Um, I, what I do is I like to um, uh, bring it, uh, 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 bring that uh, apical notch proximally and then cut anteriorly. Um, and I, I like to, see, and then I, that leaves open the, oh, that opens up the, the urethra. And then um, I, I actually like to look for the verimontanum because, you know, just like when you're doing a TRP, that's the, uh, that's the marking of where the sphincter uh, kind of ends or begins. So then I like to go just past that verimontanum where I transect the posterior urethra. For patients that have apical disease, I will take an apical margin uh, there, my, uh, but if they don't necessarily have uh, potential apical disease, I don't. Um, other uh, things that I have learned through the years, I, now I give a gram of tranexamic acid. Uh, I know that the, um, the uh, surgeons who do whole lips, a lot of them use it. And I've started using it for about uh, the last uh, nine months. And I have not formally studied it, but I have found that at the end of the case where I used to get, you know, oozing, uh, annoying oozing from either the DVC or the neurovascular bundles. I have found that that is much less, and I tend to have to take care of that kind of uh, uh, annoying bleeding at the end of the case, uh, and it obviously cuts down a lot of time. So I've also I do that routinely, and really have not had any side effects or any, uh, you know, higher risk of DVTs or anything like that. Um, so, uh, and then finally, I am I. I, I do like to do an anterior urethropexy, and I, I, I've done that for uh, 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 
over 20 years, 25 years. And then unfortunately I had a case where I used to tack it to the back of the pubis and I had a patient who developed pubic osteomyelitis and ultimately needed to have a cystectomy. Uh, and obviously it was a horrible complication. So I don't do that anymore. So instead what I do, um, I, I tie off the DVC, but often that stitch falls off. I, I don't staple, I, 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 uh, I cut through and I, I tie it off. So instead, what I do now is that extra stitch. Instead of tacking it to the back of the pubis, I go to Cooper's ligament. It cut, forms kind of like an arc. So I go to Cooper's ligament on one side, then bring my stitch around the DVC, and then go to the other Cooper's ligament, and I use Lapratize to leave that stitch in place. And it's nice because it also kind of gives me something to aim for as I go through the DVC. Great. Thank you so much. Really, really insightful in terms of different things that I, I don't necessarily do all of those things in, in, in my cases. Um, we have a few questions coming in from the chat. Uh, uh, Dr. Saul Austin, I think this is a great question. How, uh, how do you think prostate size changes the ability to do these techniques uh, and also early con and how does it affect early continence rates? Julie, what is your what, what are your thoughts on large prostates and and some of these techniques that were described by uh, Dr. Samarjan, how 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 do you think that would affect continence rates in big prostates, and how do you handle a really big prostate? So certainly, the prostate size and contour, um, as well as the shape of the pelvis, can make a certain technique easier or harder to perform. Um, I do a lot of MRIs on my prostatectomies before um, we go into surgery, so I certainly take that into account with surgical planning. Um, where I see a patient have a larger prostate, maybe with a median lobe, it's going to make it a little bit harder for that bladder sparing, um, bladder neck sparing technique. Um, and so sometimes I'll get a little bit of a wider bladder neck that I have to reconstruct. And I'll usually do that anteriorly. Um, but I've not attempted some of those other techniques that Dr. Clear was describing. Um, I do and always have really tried with the urethral length preservation. And I would agree with Alice where I've been in practice for about five years now and more than um, drastically changing a lot of the techniques that I've used. I think that I've really made small tweaks to just perform those better at this point. Great. Thank you. We have another question. And I think that Dr. Claire alluded to this a little bit. Uh, when you have apical disease, I think that's a challenge for really everything that we can offer from prostate, you know, for, in terms of prostate cancer treatments, whether that be radiation, whether that be surgery. Um, what, how do you, I'm going to ask this to Dr. Gadzinski. Um, when you have apical disease, is it possible to preserve urethral length? How comfortable do you feel kind of scraping back that apical tissue to expose that urethra? Or do you feel like you leave the anatomy as is, you try to make sure that you have as much urethra as you can and you just transect it? Yeah, when there's a lot of apical disease, especially if that's where the high risk or high grade disease is, I usually will not try to dig out the urethra from the prostate very much, kind of, you know, pull as much on the prostate back as you can to kind of expose the urethra where it's at. And then usually I'll just transect it at that point. I think, you know, ultimately it is a cancer surgery. And uh, I think especially if someone has a 4-4 or 4-5 at the apex, I think you kind of have to really make sure you do everything you can to avoid positive margins there. And so I think in that case, I'm, I'm not going to do uh, heroic things to save every last, you know, half a millimeter, millimeter or millimeter of urethra at that point. Okay, great. And uh, 
Uh, this question I'm going to direct to Alice, uh, uh, Dr. Samarja, and she works with a lot of our own residents at the University of Michigan. What do you think, um, and this is a, a question from Dr. Delella, what are the, what do you think are the, the, e the, the, the easiest um, techniques that you describe that can be learned and also the easiest ones that can be reproduced and, and, uh, and taught um, as you try to train that next generation of, of, of surgeons to be able to do these procedures independently? Yeah, well, a lot of those techniques I don't use. I would say that uh, routinely I try to spare the bladder neck or do a reconstruction. Um, and, you know, oftentimes I'll have the resident do, you know, the reconstruction. I'll use an anterior reconstruction if we're using it. I think that's a that's a fairly easy part of the procedure um, to teach them since oftentimes I'll let them do the anterior anastomosis anyway. Um, you know, the urethral length, that's the other thing that I'll, I'll use fairly um, routinely, but that's something I, I have a little bit more hesitation about, you know, trying to teach a resident to do unless they've shown me, you know, over time that they're, they're really progressing and they really understand what we're going for there just because of the risk of a positive margin. Great. Thank you. And so what, what proportion or what, what do you think is more, and if in terms of continence recovery, how much is patient related? And how much is it? How much is surgeon related? Of course, we're trying to we're trying to affect the the surgeon related outcomes and the surgeon dependent factors. Uh, how much can we really improve upon that? Um, when if there's a large proportion of that is really going to be patient related, um, I'll direct that question to Dr. Brownell. Well, I certainly think it's a combination of both. I have found in my own practice that those patients that have a lot of lower urinary tract symptoms preoperatively um, and have been having more chronic issues with uh, difficulty voiding, they do tend to have a little bit of a slower recovery with their urinary control. Um, I've also found that patients that are smokers or that are older do tend to have a little bit of a slower recovery, whereas uh, younger, healthier males do seem to recover a little bit quicker. So obviously those are things that we can't alter. Um, you can think about patient selection, but we can't really choose those factors going into it. So I think that it is a combination of both, um, but I certainly do see that uh, patient factors do have a large contribution to uh, urinary control. You, you counsel those patients differently. So, uh, so those who may have lower urinary tract symptoms ahead of time, you just quote them the kind of general outcomes that you that you can deliver them. Or if the patient is morbidly obese, or they have you know urge urinary uh, or urge urinary urgency or some sort of bladder dysfunction, you tell them upfront, hey, you may have an increased risk of urinary leakage postoperatively. I do. I certainly try to give them appropriate expectations postoperatively. I also have all of my patients meet with our pelvic floor therapist preoperatively and then again postoperatively if they're struggling early on with their urinary control. And so we'll try to tailor factors that may contribute to those things like dietary bladder irritants that may be contributing to the urgency. Um, obviously, we counsel all our patients to try to quit smoking and then um, if there is a time frame in which some weight loss and incorporating some appropriate exercise preoperatively can be done, then we'll do that as well. How successful are you with getting patients to lose weight prior to prostatectomy? I haven't had a great amount of luck. <laughs> Probably about as successful as you are. It's hard to uh, <laughs> okay. motivate some of these people to do that. 
Yeah, yeah. And okay, so um, I'm going to uh, ask this a question from Dr. Chudler to Dr. Clear. Uh, what is the dosage of tranexamic acid that you administer? And at what time point during the operation um, do you give it? Um, <clears throat> I use a gram, which is a standard dose, and I give it at the time that uh, the patient is going asleep. So right, right at the beginning of induction. Yeah. Okay, great, great. And uh, we do have a we do have a comment from Dr. Brian Lane. I think this is a really insightful comment, actually. That he says that I think that early continence has a lot to do with technique, and the reason is is that he bases it on. Uh, one, tens of thousands of patients that have undergone open radical prostatectomy and ten thousands of patients that have now undergone robotic process, radical prostatectomy with better early continence. That's one. And second is that we uh, even we, we do even have within music, we have risk adjusted variability in surgical outcomes with regard regarding continence. And uh, within music, even when we control for factors like high BMI, uh, baseline urinary dysfunction, we do see some high performing surgeons, whatever that technique that they use is, whether it be, uh, it's not all about patient selection and patient factors, we do see that they remain high performing across all patient, uh, all patient categories. Um, so, so thank you for that. Uh, and then the final question before we go into our next session, how do you manage somebody, a patient who has a persistently elevated PSA postoperatively? We're now all operating on higher risk patients or patients who have early biochemical recurrence. We think that you know, the right thing to do is salvage radiation. At what time point uh, would you do that? Dr. Gadzinski. I think that's a great question, especially for someone whose urinary control is definitely not where you want it to be. The moment you do the radiation, what I tell patients is you pretty much will fix their continence where it is. And if they're at two to three pads a day, there won't be much improvement after it's irradiated sometimes, but I definitely don't uh, tell them to expect that. So one thing that you can do, you, obviously you want to get someone to six months. And so sometimes you can do is just put them on hormone therapy while they're waiting to regain their continence. And uh, especially if there's someone who was going to get hormone therapy in conjunction with their radiation anyways. And then I think you're kind of, you know, controlling the disease and stress that to the patient, letting, and those are patients who you, I also will send to pelvic floor physical therapy if they haven't seen them already, because now there's a, a time constraint to it. And then once they hopefully get to six months out, you know, then they can do the radiation. Great. Thank you so much. Um, thank you to the panel. We're going to now transition into our next session. Uh, I'd like to introduce Dr. Christopher Breedy, who is a urologist at Spectrum Health and an expert uh, robotic surgeon in his own right. He has taken the time today to share his initial experience with da Vinci single port surgery. Thank you, Dr. Breedy. Dr. George, and thank you all for the opportunity to speak on my early single port black surgery experience. So for my background, seven years out of residency, I do roughly 100 robotic cases a year, and that's XI for the last four years. Kind of do uh, all comers, prostate, kidney, bladder, you reroll some RPLNDs. Um, the drive towards Singapore was driven by a partner uh, with um, a drive for uh, getting this into the hospital system and then the hospital system wanting to back that, that drive up to advance the field. Uh, for my XI platform uh, instruments, I use monopolar progress and the non-suture cut scissors primarily, uh, as well as needle drivers. Um, primarily doing transperitoneal surgery and rarely will do a retroperitoneal uh, case, uh, kidney case if uh, clinically indicated. What are some of the preoperative considerations I was advised on uh, for the single port system? 
those thinner patients and with less aggressive uh, local disease. Um, I had no consideration for erection status as that wasn't a big consideration when I switched over to the XI platform. I wanted to keep the surgical technique as similar to uh, my XI approach at first as possible. So that was for me and for my assistant. Um, prostate volume was also smaller, less than 50 grams. For the kidney case I was uh, attempting at first were small renal masses and at least partially uh, exophytic. And again, using a transperitoneal approach for these. Um, so intraoperatively, what have I learned so far using the SP system? The uh, training from Intuitive is incredibly helpful and uh, necessary getting used to the different movements at the wrist and the elbow of the SP system as well as how the instruments interact with each other, which is vastly different than the XI system. At first, when you're operating, you feel like a sloth with every movement is super slow uh, and it almost feels very deliberate in what you're doing. Um, I found that my upper back was horribly stiff, and this was probably just from me being tense uh, with the new instrument movements. Uh, the mental fatigue is real, um, much different than the, the XI system at first, and my cases then therefore took about 30% longer uh, at first. Uh, intraoperatively, what uh, did I note? Um, well, I used the ProGraphs as a primary assistant instrument on the XI system, and I had switched over to the fenestrated bipolar on the SP, which has different grasping characteristics, and of course, utilization with the bipolar uh, instrument is nice. The scissors are different. There's a different angle to the curvature of the SP scissor, but it is a new scissor tip each time you use the instrument, uh, which is very nice. Uh, there's no vessel sealer available, which I was using primarily uh, in cystectomy cases, and I have not done one of those yet for the SP platform. Um, the grasping ability and quality is also different uh, with the instruments, which is something we get used to. The current instruments for the SP platform are not as robust as the XI uh, instruments, so this primarily comes into place when you are retracting, specifically the prostate or the kidney, your ability to push <clears throat> on the organ uh, is limited uh, due to the instrument's flex. Uh, in terms of an assistant, uh, I've gone down from using two assistant ports to just one assistant port, so you're left with less assistance. Uh, the big thing is I've learned is the team set up in the OR is very important, having a nurse and a tech that are the same for your initial cases as well as your assistant at the bedside is crucial. This can be difficult given the frequency at which you may be using the system and the fact that other people are not using the system to train up these individuals. Uh, so talking about my operative approach for prostatectomies, um, starting started doing these with the 25 millimeter uh, SP uh, trocar. And at first I was using two assists, so 12 millimeter aerosol and a five millimeter. And I have since dropped the five millimeter for my assistant as this most closely replicated what I was doing for XI. Um, I've done all prostatectomies to date using the transperitoneal approach uh, with a pneumoperitoneum of uh, 12 and 28 degrees of Trendelenburg. These, like I've said before, the monopolar scissors and two fenestrated bipolar instruments. And I use one needle driver when I'm doing my anastomosis and sewing the DVC. Uh, uh, and the big difference for me on the SP is that bipolar 
I've had to learn to use that bipolar uh, efficiently and effectively. Uh, this has been helpful in, in many cases I've actually found. <clears throat> um, one other intraop difference I found for the pedicle control, uh, when I use the SP robot, my assistant is assistant is placing uh, wet clips through the assistant port, uh, and those were the larger purple wet clips. Now we've had to uh, size down as I've changed uh, my assistant port from the 12 millimeter air seal to an eight millimeter air seal. Um, so there's either a smaller uh, five millimeter Hemalock clips or uh, intuitive uh, offers a robotic clip that I've used as well. These are smaller in general, so it does change how you do your dissection. Um, from a kidney standpoint, I did my first uh, three partial nephrectomies <coughs> transperitoneal. Um, and this was again using that 25 millimeter trocar. I realized that uh, the limitation with this when you're doing uh, cases in the flank is the distance to the target, which is set fairly specifically to deploy the uh, arms of the single port instruments correctly. And so I've switched over to using uh, Intuitive's uh, single port access port. Uh, this allows for uh, arm deployment and uh, better distance to target ratio. Um, I've also uh, tried cases retro with the retroperitoneal approach with this and it seems uh, maybe more feasible than with the XI uh, due to the uh, less incisions that you have to make uh, in a small confined space. So postoperatively, um, the, my experience, how patients are doing, um, you know, the less incisions I think um, is, you know, it's helpful in opening and closing your, your surgery. Uh, is there less pain? Uh, maybe empirically there, there might be less um, narcotic utilization seems to be about the same. Uh, I found that there's less abdominal wall ecmosis afterwards. I think this is just attributed to having less incisions. And my same day surgery discharge has been equal. And I, I'm only getting about one out of 15 people home, one out of 10 people home same day. Um, the graph just shows the number of cases I've done uh, uh, with, with, the, with the system so far. <clears throat> so the changes I've made uh, so far, um, for a prostatectomy, again, like I said, I've gone from two assistant ports down to one, and that assistant port has gotten smaller. I'm using less Trendelenburg now, slowly kind of coming back from 28 to 25. <clears throat> doesn't seem like much so far, and to me, it doesn't seem like much either, so maybe that pushes me to want to do even small, even less Trendelenburg, and I've done larger prostates so far. For the kidney operations, I've done um, some nephroureterectomies with uh, lymph node dissections in the retroperitoneum and have done uh, purely retroperitoneal surgery as well. <clears throat> as well as for pyeloplasties, I've done uh, two of these and uh, done them as true single port operations. This is just uh, to show what my, my times for surgery have been so far and what the learning curve looks like over the first 20 cases. And then uh, I thought this was interesting looking back uh, on the left is my first 20 cases I did back in 2018 with the XI system. And then on the right is the first 20 cases with the SP system. The scale is a little different that, that you can note uh, on the left side of the graph. Um, but overall, the learning curve seems very similar with the SP still taking me a little bit longer. So in summary, 
Um, I've been selective early on in the ways that we talked about. Um, there are some advantages to the SP system I've seen so far, but there are also some disadvantages. Um, the cognitive load being the big one, as well as the body position. Um, I haven't attempted larger renal masses to this point. <clears throat> Mainly some of that is the stapling issue that we'd still need an assistant port for. I have not done a cystectomy yet either. Um, and would have to modify my technique without having a vessel sealer. Uh, logistically for the OR staff, I think there are some challenges with single port, uh, mainly if you will be probably the only one in your hospital or your team will be the only one doing this as other um, areas except for ENT are not approved so far. So getting the same scrub tech, uh, the same assistance, the same nurses each time is fairly critical at the beginning, I think. The learning curve in general, I think feels relatively short. Um, I think I've made advances so far in, in these last eight months or so. Uh, I think the cognitive load does improve rather quickly over the first 10 to 15 cases. And some of the skills then back translate over if you are still doing some excise surgery, I found that it has been helpful. Uh, you know, what, what are the things I would have wished known from the beginning, how sore my back would have been. So I could have done some strength training exercises on my own prior to coming in and doing uh, a lot of SP surgery. So in the future, hope to do more uh, surgery and organ uh, operative space. So, you know, get out of the transperitoneal approach, less Trendelenburg, <clears throat> less pneumoperitoneum, hopefully improving patient outcomes in that way and, and improving same day discharges. Um, continuing to expand the disease states that I'm willing to operate on as well. So that is all. Um, I'll now kick it over to Craig Rogers to speak more on uh, his more robust experience, what an expert really looks like uh, who does single port surgery. Thank you, Chris. It really is an honor to be uh, a part of this event today and to be able to talk about single port prostatectomy. Um, I'm going to be giving my own experience. Um, this year in our department, we're celebrating our 100th year anniversary, and it's a time of reflection of how far things have come, especially with robotic surgery. If you look at this picture, this is a picture of Dr. Menon uh, at one of the early days doing robotic prostatectomy, and you notice Dr. Jim Peabody there in the upper right uh, was assisting one of those cases. Well, it's come a long way. It's not just a prostate tool anymore. It's uh, robotic surgery has taken over many areas of our own field and other fields. And, and we've seen iterations of the robot through four generations of robots and now a new robotic platform called the single port robotic platform. Um, we, um, our experience at Henry Ford, we started using the single port uh, platform in 2020. Um, so I'm going to give a little bit about my own experience and what value I see it brings and, and some technique of how to use it. So in my view, in my opinion, I feel the value of the single port system is to facilitate it. I think it helps facilitate an extra peritoneal approach. You can certainly use it the way you do um, multi-port as an intraperitoneal approach, but I think having all the instruments, what you see on the right, confined are going through a single aperture really makes it well suited to get to kind of harder to reach spaces like the retroperitoneum for kidney, extraperitoneal for prostate. Um, benefits for prostate is you're avoiding with an extraperitoneal approach, you're avoiding the need for Trendelenburg position. Um, you don't need a pneumoperitoneum uh, for um, to insufflate the abdomen. 
earlier return of bowel function, and that would translate smaller incisions, less pain, better cosmesis. Um, I don't think this is really about the number of incisions. It's about being able to do something different, uh, bring in a difference to your repertoire and a tool that makes that easy, easier. Um, so one of the, and I'll talk about barriers, but one of the barriers to learning a new technology is just, do you get enough repetitions to get through your learning curve? You know, so many of us doing prostate surgery are doing these with multi-port, but we may not have enough cases that are well-suited to doing the single port initially. So in my opinion, you can actually use the XI, use the multi-port as a platform to start learning some of the techniques that you would need in starting out with single port. Some of those things that, at least for me, the things I had to learn, in addition to just the technology itself, was learning how to have more autonomy in things like suctioning. Um, so if you look on the left, this would be um, this would be a multi-port system. This is the XI system. But the thing that I've done differently on this case is notice the camera port is going through a gel point. All right. So the gel point is what I'm using to kind of simulate a single port case. So I, I'm going to take an XI case and kind of go through the motions of some of the techniques to use for single port. Now, single port is on the right. And um, the instruments are all going through the top. This is what's called an access trocar. And what it allows is those instruments to um, that have elbows to be able to reach in. It, it's what's what would be called a floating dock configuration, but the trocar does that for you. And we're seeing an air seal on the right and then a suction that can be used by the surgeon going through the top aperture on the right. So simulating that on the left for a multi-port, I've got this suction, it's called the rosy suction. So that's going through the gel point, the camera goes through and we'll actually extract the specimen in real time through the gel point, just like we could in a single port case, extract the prostate into this access trocar. So I'll show you in a case, and obviously I'm gonna show you a single port case as well, but this is, a, this is just a standard prostatectomy, Gleason 7 cancer. And I notice my left hand is holding this rosy suction. So I'm, I'm the one giving retraction to myself. Um, now, the other thing is I still have a five millimeter port that could be used for standard, uh, a striker suction, just a rigid suction. So if, for example, it's a step that my resident is doing, and they're still trying to learn the steps of the procedure, they, we can be at different points of the learning curve. When they're doing the right side, for example, I don't really want them necessarily focusing on single port. I want them focusing on the steps of the procedure so we can bring in a rigid suction for them. When I'm operating and I wanna focus more on single port techniques, then I'll be using, I'll try to minimize the use of an assistant port or the assistant at all try to retract for myself, try to suck for myself. So it allows two people to be at different points in their learning curve. Now, one thing, if I was doing this, and up on the right hand, you're seeing a single port system on the right. When I do the vas and seminal vesicles, I try to keep them attached to one another. And uh, that way, the vas deferens helps pull the seminal vesicle up because I don't have an assistant necessarily to come in at different angles to retract this. So. It, so it's part of the learning curve is 
is making smaller motions with your wrists and retracting for yourself. So, and then using the suction, the rosy suction, both for exposure, but also for retraction. And, um, and I get to the point where I'm becoming more and more used to, if I'm using that suction in a regular case, I start to realize this has some advantages to it. I'm in control. I don't have to say, hey, put your suction here, put your suction there. I can put it right where I want. So now we're doing the posterior plane, separating the prostate off the rectum. And you saw in the upper right hand with the single port, the camera can be flipped from a up approach or a 12 o'clock to a down below a six o'clock approach. That's similar to flipping your camera to a 30 up position. Um, so I try to I try to do this step, the posterior approach, flipping to 30 up so I can get more used to that view. Um, then we'll take the pedicles, kind of the standard way. In fact, I may skip through part of this. Um, now we're starting to do nerve sparing on the left side. And, uh, and then taking the apex. So I will skip through some of this as well. This is just a regular multi-port case. We'll get back to techniques that would be for single port. So what you'll see here soon is the prostate's about to be released. And once the prostate's released, that prostate is gonna be extracted out of the gel point. Now we've been doing this uh, anyway, where we'll remove the prostate through the gel point um, uh, as a way to assess margin status where you can palpate for nodularity and send frozens. Notice what's happening with the suction there where the, um, the Foley catheter can be used as a suction. This is the prostate coming out the gel point. I really love doing this now in multi-port cases where e either the rosy suction or the rigid suction can be inserted into the Foley catheter and can be used so the surgeon can control it. Um, and that way I'm not having the assistant have to suck on the right, suck on the left. Um, you just have to make sure you're not sucking on the urethra. So you're only suctioning when the Foley catheter's out. The other difference is how we tie a knot. So side to side, usually for multi-port, it's usually front to back, um, which you can see on the upper right. The instruments aren't quite as strong, although the instruments are improved and they have, um, they have made some improvements in those instruments. All right, so moving on, when I use the, uh, when do I use it? I mainly use the single port when I have prior, a patient with prior abdominal surgery. So you can see our own on the right. Many of these patients have had ventral hernia repair, diversions, uh, PD catheter. I prefer to do prostates that are smaller, patients that have lower risk disease. Um, I think it's a little harder with the retraction currently with the platform to do very large prostates. Also, if I'm doing an extra peritoneal approach and the patient's had a lap hernia repair, that's gonna make the extra peritoneal, the space aretzius harder to dissect. So getting started, try with multi-port, try to use less assistance, um, try to progress to no assistant port at all, and then doing a lot of case observations, proctoring, SP, uh, getting labs, just watching videos. So this, again, now I'm gonna show an extra peritoneal prostatectomy. This is the access port on the left. Um, usually incision is about four centimeters above the pubic symphysis and offset a incision between the skin and the fascia. I like to make the fascial incision transverse because it's easier to just close the anterior rectus uh, sheath. Um, 
This is showing the space being developed. In this case, I'm using a balloon to dissect the space of Retsius, but you don't, I could just put my finger in there and you could use your finger and sweep it back and forth. The access trocar has been um, placed, the robot's been docked, and we're just robotically dissecting, getting more space in the space of Retsius. This is opening the endopelvic fascia. Um, so I have a scissors in the right, and I have a Maryland bipolar, um, I have both a Maryland bipolar and a fenestrated bipolar grasper. So I have two graspers that both have heat on it, but, um, and I like to do that just because I have the option to bipolar in any direction if I had a vessel that I had to cauterize. Um, and this is using the rosy suction in the left hand. So again, uh, as we go through the posterior bladder neck, Rosy suction, counter-retraction, lifting up on the vas deferens, providing that retraction for myself. So the assistant is not retracting, but we're lifting up. Um, and in this case, so there are clips, but the clips that come in are only five millimeter, they're green clips. So I, I go ahead and pre-sew. So this is a difference, right, that I'm not doing multi-port is I'm doing a, by placing a suture at the pedicle instead of a clip. And I'm also pre-placing a suture on the dorsal vein before I come across the dorsal vein. Now, this is not what I do multi-port. I usually cut first, so later, um, but during while I'm still in my learning curve, I just feel more comfortable putting a stitch in it up front. Um, I will then cut, and then if I get into bleeding, the stitch is already there and it's easy to put a suture across it. So we're doing the final attachments at the apex rosy suction again to get better exposure. Prostate's been released. That's going to be taken out into the access port to get it out of the way. Because you're in the, you know, in the, um, when you're extra peritoneal, you don't want the prostate flopping back into view. And now it's doing the anastomosis, same way you would do multi-port. Sure, the instruments are a little different. They don't have wrist motion. So you're sewing more from your arm, your your shoulder and your elbow than you are your wrist. And when you tie, it's more, I usually tie more front to back, but otherwise it's the same technique, just a different tool. So what are the barriers that would keep people from doing this? It's new, you know, we kind of get in our groove of what we do and, um, and also it's a smaller working space. It's kind of like working within the confines of a tennis ball, but the tennis ball is moving and all your instruments move in that tennis ball from one place to the next. Um, retraction's different. Instead of having your elbows out and doing big, wide retraction motions, it's kind of like having your forearms together, almost like they're, um, like you're in, like your forearms are locked together and you're operating with your wrists this way. Um, and you're suturing without an actual wrist articulation. So that's going to be some more operating time while you're in your learning curve. You have to get used to less retraction, fewer, and it's early, it's it's model one. There, it doesn't have as many of the instruments that I'm used to. Uh, I'd love to see a vessel sealer come out. I'd love to see a 10 millimeter wet clip applier. Um, so we're still waiting on some of the instrumentation. And it just takes mental focus. It, you are gonna be more fatigued. You just can't go on autopilot and do your case. You're gonna have to be patient as you learn. So in conclusion, the single port is another tool. And that tool can help expand your options, especially if you're looking to do more of an extra peritoneal approach, whether it's prostate or kidney. Um, 
And then if you're going to become more efficient, it takes a commitment to get through your learning curve, even using the multi-port cases to help you do that. And then many educational opportunities are available um, through observations, videos, et cetera. So with that, I just want to thank you uh, for the opportunity to present. And uh, I will go ahead and uh, uh, turn it over now uh, for questions. Thank you. All right, thank you so much for those very interesting talks. Uh, so I wanna introduce our panel. We have Dr. Craig Rogers and Dr. Chris Brady, who you just heard from. And we also have Dr. Ryan Nelson. Three of them are doing a number of single ports, so we hope to learn from you. Um, so we are very different experiences in terms of Dr. Rogers focusing on the extra peritoneal approach and Dr. Brady focusing more at this point on an uh, intraperitoneal approach. So Dr. Nelson, just for reference, so so we know, what, what are you doing right now? Um, I currently am doing uh, mostly uh, trans uh, peritoneal. I've gotten into the transvesical prostatectomies for the low risk Gleason uh, cancers because the lymph node dissection is quite uh, difficult and it really stresses out the bladder neck. Um, but I've found that, you know, what Dr. Brady stated is that starting off with like a single port plus one for your assist is an excellent way to start modality of this new technique because it allows you to help yourself with the assist. And then as you gradually progress and you get more confidence using the system um, to go with a true access port. And now we start with a red rubber catheter as a modified rosy system. Now my um, I've learned techniques to facilitate my assist from the outside by moving my right hand back so the motor drive is out of the way so my assist can come straight in with a suction through the access port. Um, that also has facilitated that, but I've noticed a great improvement in patient outcomes as far as hospital stay, uh, less pain, and uh, lower positive margin rates. And I think that's due to the increased vis visibility because instead of just a fixed zero degree or 30 degree, you have a multi-degree camera that you can look around the apex, look underneath, and so I, I've just had a great experience with it. And it is true, it's a mental struggle to start with, but over time you gradually get used to it and then you come to really enjoy it and love it. Great, thank you. Um, so we have, I also wanna direct everyone's attention to the question box. So if you do have questions, please put them in the question box and hop in so that we can address them for you. So we have one anonymous question. I think we heard from Dr. Rogers and Dr. Brady, but Dr. Nelson, how did your operative times change when you switched from, or when you use the single port as opposed to when you use multi-port? So my multi-port experience, um, you know, it's, uh, it's quite nice being comfortable on it and it's very intuitive. And then when you do switch to the single port, um, as Dr. Rogers stated, it is working in a very small space. And so you have to move all your robotic arms together. So you have to think mentally uh, to move you know, to get to D, you have to do A, B, and C first, and then you get to D. So my operative times did increase about 20 to 30% starting off. I've been tracking my times with my intuitive app, and now I'm close to mimicking the same times that I have on multi-port, but it's taken over 200 cases to get there. Wow. Okay. That's great. 
Okay, uh, I have another question from the chat. So this one's for Dr. Breedy. Um, what's the benefit to performing single port transperitoneally? Have you, have you seen one? Yeah, if, if you're talking the benefit over XI, um, I think we're talking about just using a different system to me at this point, right? You know, I haven't seen a change in my same day discharges, blood loss, um, uh, anything like this. So um, you're just saying, is there a new technique that you're learning? So I think that is a benefit because eventually um, when I get more comfortable, do more cases, I want to be where, you know, Craig and Ryan are, uh, you know, doing more extra perineal approach to cases. And I think that that has already helped as I, you know, have quickly uh, tried some of these, these cases and been successful doing them. Um, so I think that's the biggest, uh, the biggest benefit from, you know, learning this system. All right, great. And I have another comment from the chat. This one's from Dr. Ginsburg. Um, so it seems like a little more use of energy while taking the pedicles with bipolar with a single port compared with multi-port and using clips. Uh, so I'll direct this to Dr. Rogers. Do you tend to use single port for men that are less concerned with preserving erectile function? Uh, yes, I do. I mean, it's, it's a very good observation that um, because you don't have as big of clips and uh, I don't feel like I'm quite in my learning curve where I could as quickly get control of bleeding. I just feel more comfortable if I have someone that does a lower potency status where the stakes aren't as high there. Um, you know, and I'll, uh, so that's why I'll try to do sutures where I can suture ligate through that. So then if I do get into bleeding, I can just throw a suture rather than, you know, having to do a lot of charring. I would love it if they could come out with a small vessel sealer or something like that. That I think that would be a game changer for this, at least for me. That would give me a lot more confidence in that one area. Okay. Um, and another question from the chat. Can you speak more about patient experience with pain, recovery of single port versus multi-port? Um, Dr. Nelson, why don't you cover that? Are you having to send more or less people home with narcotic pain medications? Do you, do you Have you heard anecdotally that your patients are having less pain or having an easier experience? Um, so I think this is the biggest home run for me is that over the past year, we have not sent uh, any patients home on uh, narcotics. They've all been sent home on either Toril, Motrin, or Tylenol. And also due to the fact that we're going under the umbilicus and we're not entering the peritoneal cavity, um, instead of six weeks, no heavy lifting or no golf, I'm saying that uh, these guys are able to golf within 14 days and they're actually able to do so. And I haven't noticed a single one that has come back with any rates of hernia. So I think the biggest thing for me was the patient outcomes and they haven't had any problems thus far. Okay, great. Um, Dr. Brady, I have another question for you. How did you get started with this? Um, did you do a training program, watch videos, uh, have a rep available with you in the OR? Yeah. Um, so you go down uh, to one of uh, Intuitive's sites and you do a day wet lab there, pig lab. You learn there. And then um, for your first cases, I first went over and actually observed uh, Ryan Nelson. Uh, over in Henry Ford and saw him do three cases. Um, and then he, when I, I had four cases in two days lined up and he came over then and uh, observed me 
it kind of got me through uh, my first four cases. And yeah, those were definitely, like I said, I uh, just felt like, you know, you're operating through, through mud. You're just like moving so slowly and it's so painful having somebody who's like an expert watching you. So that is painful mentally uh, doing that. And then you get over that. And then he left in the next day. I was like a pro. Uh, you're, it's not that quick, but it does get better after like uh, 10, 15 cases. You're not as conscious of like how horribly slow you are anymore. And you can get on to like learning the critical part, parts of what you need to learn. And so I, I didn't find that to be, to be that bad. And, you know, at the end of the day, like I said, I started with two assistant ports. So I had my, uh, uh, PA, uh, was able to assist just like they would on the XI. So that part is a, a huge help in getting through those first cases. Otherwise, I think, uh, the, the SP system, one of the big things about it is you like, just have to commit. There's like no going back. It's not like, Oh, if this doesn't go well, SP, I'll just switch over to the XI. You like can't do that. You just have to like go for it. I think that's what I've learned. I, I just have to interject really quick. Uh, Dr. Breedy, when I was watching him, he had just a natural skill. He picked up on it extremely well. And I was really amazed. You know, I usually I have to do a, some teaching and uh, advice on where to position his arms, but he just naturally caught on right away. So you did awesome, buddy. Thanks. All right. So we have a question from Dr. Desai. Um, we heard from the, the two presentations, their take on this, but does, uh, Dr. Nelson, for you, does the large prostate or median lobe make a difference in your single port? Um, I started off with, um, you know, I had a jump right in because I was offered a block time at my hospital and that block time was on the SP. So pretty much every case that I had to do was on the SP. So I struggled and there was a lot of times where it was uh, very painstaking. And I started off trying to, you know, push out the larger prostates. And then I've attacked my largest radical so far as 128 cc's on the SP. And it is quite difficult. But if you remember just to like free up as much as you can laterally, and then the basic thing is to twist the prostate so you can get uh, posteriorly, just like you would on a multi-port. And what's unique about the SP is you can dive down uh, and really see clearly underneath something, you know, usually you have a big um, sigmoid hump that you have to come over. And now with its um, extra peritoneally, you really don't have that. So you're looking straight down. You just have to dive down and then look up and you can see that posterior plane. The posterior plane is the most difficult. Large median lobes does create a larger bladder neck um, sometimes and that's only difficult but i do a, a tennis racket and so far i haven't had any leaks with that great i have a question for anyone who knows the answer to this is there a cost difference to the patient between single port and multi-port does anyone know um it's the same facility fee and it, we charge it out to the insurance um i've been trying to uh, be very cost prohibitive as and not use as many arms. And I use only one needle driver um, and we're currently working up a cost analysis and uh, the brief numbers look like it's very comparable. Okay, great. Uh, Dr. Rogers, question for you. So as a chairman, I imagine you were probably involved in discussions on, on getting the single port at your institution. Um, did you need to advocate for it? How did you do that? And are other services using it? How do you get it? 
Well, Ryan took care of that problem for me. As soon as Ryan started doing it, I guess the hospital decided they wanted one too. And um, no, I'm kidding. But I, I, I felt like, um, I felt like it was something that it's where the puck is going. You know, I, it's not prime time right now. I get that. I could just wait until everybody's an expert at it and then figure it out. But it's only going to take a few technology changes with these instruments where this can go prime time. Uh, right. And then this may change the way we do surgery. Maybe more of us are going extra peritoneal and, you know, all this stuff we're learning with multi-port could change. So I felt like I just wanted to be part of that and advocate for it. Um, so we could learn along the way. Okay, great. Another question from the chat. Um, you know, I think we've talked about extraperitoneal versus intraperitoneal, but the question is, is there a preferred approach anterior versus posterior approach for single port? Um, you know, based on what I've heard here, it sounds like the anterior approach would be preferred with extraperitoneal um, approach. Anyone want to add anything to that? Um, well, I think uh, you can only go anterior if you're going extraperitoneal. Um, the one caveat to that is now the residue sparing, there was a big movement in that. And when you go transvesically, we kind of do a residue sparing. So I think my continence rates have uh, gone drastically up with that. Uh, Dr. Rogers, do you feel this the same? Yeah, I feel the same. Um, I want to also add in, it's been nice to have a, what I call my SP support group that I can you know, call up colleagues such as Ryan, because there is a lot of learning with this and sort of commiserating and uh, cheering each other on. So and every time I hear him talk, I learn I'm writing more tips down. Oh, I can get a su rigid suction down there. Okay, I'll try that next time. So it's good. We learn a lot from each other. That's great. Um, and were either of you doing lots of extra, extra peritoneal multi-port beforehand or was it? No. Jumped right in. No. Okay. okay. All right. Interesting. Um, okay. Let's see. I think we had another question from the chat from Dr. Peabody. Uh, can you talk about resident training in the single four robot? Um, so I think we heard some of that from Dr. Rogers. Uh, open to anyone else who's training residents. Um. Well, I, uh, I love my residents and I've tried to progress them. I want them to carry on, you know, the torches, so to speak. So I usually let them try and at least do 50%, you know, like I work on certain sections. And so every time I say, you know, what, what part of the prostatectomy would you like to work on today? Would it be the pedicles or the posterior approach? You know, when they start off, it's, you know, just clearing off the space and clearing off the anterior part of the prostate and getting the endopelvics. And um, then we work on some more difficult areas, you know, with the pedicles, the posterior, uh, the bladder neck, um, I have yet to have a resident. I feel comfortable, very careful because I'm still in my learning curve to do the entire anastomosis. So what I'll do is I'll, you know, start the posterior part of the anastomosis and then maybe help them uh, with the anterior portion. But um, it's a great experience. I, I try and give them as much as possibility time on the console as possible. Okay. Thank you. So I think we're getting to the end of our uh, Q&A session. So I'd like to introduce our keynote speaker, Dr. Kirsten Green. Uh, she's a urologic oncologist and the chair of the Department of Urology at University of Virginia. She also has significant experience with retzia sparing, robotic prostatectomy, and she's going to share that Thank with you, us. Alice. Thank you so much.
Thank you, Alice. I'm Kirsten Green. I'm going to talk about the technique and the outcomes of retiosparing cross-detectomy. These are my disclosures. And to start off with, why even bother trying something new? This was described around 2010 and has been adopted by many other experts internationally and nationally in the United States. Uh, the reason for it and the whole reason why I was interested is that time to continence really is different and faster for patients with this approach. Erectile dysfunction and function may be preserved with the Red Sea sparing approach. Now that's not as clear cut. And honestly, there's some cases where an anterior approach is really difficult and this is a great alternative to have. So what are we talking about with the Red Sea sparing? Um, instead of dropping the bladder anteriorly, the entire procedure is done through that small incision you make in the posterior peritoneum. And by doing so, it preserves the detrusor apron. A lot of the urethral support anteriorly, as well as all or most of the dorsal vein complex. When I counsel patients, um, first thing is faster return of continence is likely, but it is definitely not a guarantee. Um, most patients who have an anterior approach catch up by six months, and there's certainly a higher risk of positive margins with the Red Sea sparing approach. There's also a higher risk of urinary retention, probably about five to seven percent. And that's something I wish I had known early on because you can handle um, the patients with urinary retention a little bit more quickly and avoid an anastomotic leak. I tell all my patients I can't promise that the retinous approach will either be better or will be possible because intraoperatively there are just some angles in the pelvis that you can't figure out until you're there. And the goal definitely is negative margins, first and most importantly. So who's going to benefit from a retinous sparing approach? I think. Um, a great patient for this approach is anyone who has planned combination therapy. So high-risk patients who are definitely going to be getting adjuvant radiation. Uh, radiation can be done a lot sooner if the continence recovers more quickly. Older patients, those over 70 who naturally have a slower return of continence. And then when you're starting out, thin patients are much easier from a surgical perspective. There's not a true benefit to them from this approach, but as you acquire the skills, I think that's a lot easier and less stressful. Early continence does appear to be different in this randomized control trial, both when you measure zero pad or one pad a day. There's a meta-analysis done that found the same. Retsius is favored at one week when you compare it to anterior. It's also Retsius is favored at three months. So we are talking about a meaningful amount of time. But then um, anterior catches up by six months. So it's about a six months difference in a patient's quality of life to have this approach versus a standard anterior approach. Tips for your first patients and patient selection. Again, starting off with a thin patient, somebody with a normal BMI, someone without a medium lobe, because that can be really challenging. Smaller prostates, maybe less than 60 grams to start off with. And patients with a wide pelvis. The way I can help determine this is in clinic, if there's supine on a table, if you feel the pubic bone and it feels low, that usually indicates a wide pelvis. And that's a lot more favorable to avoid arm collisions. So, Getting started, this is a really familiar posterior approach. You're doing the whole surgery through that first step in any type of radical prostatectomy if you're someone who favors a posterior approach. Then the second step is really going to be putting in your Keith needles. These are so valuable, just the straight needles you pass through the anterior abdominal wall, lateral to the medial umbilical ligaments. And what you're doing with these is essentially pinning up that opening um, retracting the peritoneal edge anteriorly. And the whole surgery, again, is just done through that small incision. But the Keith needles, one on the right, one on the left, number one, I think it pulls the ureters up and out of your way and preserves them, but also gives you much better view. Then next steps, you're going to dissect laterally. Again, something that is really normal, um, very familiar, doing your dissection. 
And then this is a view of the left side. And what I'm doing here is I'm showing you a slightly more difficult, slightly bloodier case, because I think this is valuable to see. Um, you're talking about dissecting a very small space, trying to find the lateral side of the prostate. There's already a clip in place so that you can see I'm coming through the pedicles here. And this can all be done um, through a standard posterior approach. You're not committed to retinas at all. When I was starting, the bladder neck was the scariest part for me. I was really worried I was going to hit a ureter um, or going to damage or cut right into the back of the bladder. And I'm showing this because then I'm going to show another clip later of when I've had a little bit more experience doing a Red Sea sparing prostatectomy. But essentially, you have upward tension with your left hand. You're trying to spread those bladder neck fibers, and you're just trying to come through safely. The bladder neck division, ultimately, you just have to do it. Um, you have to get to the point where you uh, come through the bladder neck and divide it posteriorly. You come through the anterior bladder neck, which is great when you see that Foley catheter, and then you divide the posterior bladder as well. You can see a really small little bladder neck there. I think there is some preservation of the bladder neck sphincter, um, not anywhere close to the trigone. So the anterior prostate dissection, this is also very familiar. All of a sudden, the surgery feels like you're going back to a normal anterior um, dissection. You can see right here as we go across, if there's a big anterior tumor, you're so close to the prostate and you're ultimately below the dorsal vein here that this is not ideal for an anterior tumor. And this is where you can really get a positive margin in this regard. Median lobes are a lot harder. I definitely think it's a good idea to get a sense of how to do it without actually tackling a median lobe first. You always want to look for your bladder neck fibers if you do encounter a median lobe. And paradoxically, it's actually going to fall down on you um, and peel out of the mucosa. But again, save this for later as you get started. So when you're dealing with the urethra, again, this is going to look really normal. I think air seal helps a lot here because the dorsal vein is not controlled. Um, and so you can get bleeding if you come partially or completely through the dorsal vein in this regard. It's, you have a 30-up lens, and that's absolutely critical. And it's tough sometimes for your assistant to get down in there. So if you have your assistant coming in and just sucking the smoke, that's not going to help you. So air seal for this helps to keep the pressure up. And then what I'll sometimes do is have somebody irrigate to clear off the blood rather than try to suction. Now I want to show a video of what's really the hardest part about red sea sparing prostatectomy. What you can see here is the posterior plane is open. And what I find to be the most difficult part is really coming around the sides of the prostate. Um, I've had people ask, like, how do you know if you can do a red sea sparing approach? This is how I know. If I get to this part and I can actually get the pedicles off and come around what we call the shoulders of the prostate or the side of the prostate, then you can go ahead and go forward with the procedure. If you can't do this, um, then you have to drop it and go anterior. And I'm going to let this play for just a bit because, you know, when I was learning this approach, I watched a lot of videos and this part always looked really, really easy. It looked like the nerves just peel right off. It looked like the pedicle just peels off. And there's a couple key moves here. One of them uh, is what the scissors just did there, which is finding the space lateral to the prostate, really trying to find the area beyond uh, the pedicle so that you're not just getting into vessels. And then another key part is freeing up these attachments at the top. That's just going to let the bladder release off the prostate um, and really help you find the side of the prostate. But this is what I wish I had known when I was starting, 
um, the difficulty of this particular part, I always worried about the bladder neck. I worried about catching the ureter. And the hardest part really is this. Now, I will say as an aside, this case is someone who had high-risk prostate cancer, no erectile function, which is why I'm using so much pottery. Um, I thought it was more useful to see this, though, because without a lot of clips in the way, you can get a little bit of a clearer view. One thing that I think is a tip that I use all the time is when things are very stuck, as this clearly is, sometimes I'll go to the mid-prostate, as I have here, and actually spread at the mid-prostate. Things are a lot looser there. The nerves come up a lot come off a lot better. And sometimes you can kind of loosen it up on that side. Now this prostate is not giving it up. It's not going to do that. So the next step, the next tip, if you can't do that, is to spread laterally. And what I did first was I freed up at the top where the bladder meets the prostate. And then you try to spread here and you just keep on spreading. Sometimes you can get your assistant to put their suction in there. But as you go down in this area, you will eventually see the side of the prostate. Once you see the side of the prostate, you know that you're safe and you know that you can continue from a retzia approach. So I'm going to move this forward just a little bit for us so you can see that side. So here you can see that there's the side of the prostate. It's easy at that point to say, all right, here's the pedicle. Let's get the clip and, um, and keep moving forward. So again, when I'm, when I'm thinking about can I do a retzia-sparing prostatectomy or not, this is what tells me if I can or not moving this forward to the left side. It's the same thing. Once you get the right side, you can pretty much do the case, and then you want to try to get the left side. The same approach, trying to find that space. For whatever reason, once you have one side, it's a lot easier. You can find your other side. You can divide those bladder neck fibers at the top that are holding you. And then what you want to do is, after you've really gotten your pedicle off, you're coming up and around the sides. Again, this is what takes the longest. This is the hardest, most difficult part of the case, the part where it's really hard to find um, just a video of somebody struggling, which is why I think this is useful, and uh, the part where it really is make or break for the case. As you come down the side, you're going to see that shiny white surface of the prostate. You're going to see uh, some of the fat lateral to the prostate. And then in a nerve-sparing case, all of this can be cold and you can cut the nerve levels off the side of the prostate and sweep it all down and save it. So moving on to the bladder neck part, and the reason why ultimately the bladder neck is really not the hardest part. So as you do this, you are gonna come up and around the top of the prostate and you are gonna make your bladder neck so small that it almost looks like a urethra. I have uh, the catheter wiggled. You can see the Foley balloon up top and then if you've done this correctly, all you have left there is your bladder neck coming right into the prostate. And this isn't scary at all. You know that there's no trigone there. You know you're not gonna hit a ureter. Now this looks super thin right here. What I think is pretty interesting is as you, you see the cutting proceed, it's actually quite thick. I, when I was watching this video back, I was like, oh man, I'm so close to the catheter, but you actually have a nice thick urethra there. You come through that, you drop your forward catheter, and then you take the posterior part of it and you're left with a nice small bladder neck up top um, and a good margin on the prostate. And the other tip here is that left hand has to hold the bladder up. As you hold the bladder up, it allows you to take a plane that's a lot closer to the bladder, farther away from the anterior prostate, and that can help you not get an anterior prostate margin. I think sewing is the second hardest part, and it's not that it's hard, as much as it's just kind of frustrating. Back to that. Um, one thing that I found early on was just 
um, needle placement. So trying to get the needles go out in um, rather than into out on the bladder and then passing that through the urethra. So is continence really better? Yes, again, looking at the meta-analyses, it's better. Looking at a variety of different studies done all across the world, it does appear to be better. Whether you measure it as zero pads a day um, or as one pad a day, again, this randomized control trial looking at zero pads a day, it is much better. This is continence in my first 25 patients because I think there's a difference when you read in the literature about something you know, being better versus, okay, well, how about in someone who hasn't done 5,000 prostatectomies? So I looked back at my first 25 patients. I defined continence as zero pads a day, no liners, nothing for protection, absolutely nothing. And so what I found was in my retinal sparing patients, about half of patients actually reported back that when the catheter came out, they did not wear anything. And that was much less common in my anterior patients. Um, it continued to improve out to two months. And then these were early days, so I didn't have six-month follow-up. So showing this, again, this is my first 25 patients that I followed out to a year. And retsy sparing and uh, anterior, they do really catch up. You know, it's going to be different based on 25 patients. So um, small patient population. If you, did, if you describe it as zero to one pad a day, it's 100% for retsy sparing. Um, if we really describe it very strictly as zero pads a day, um, it's still good results, and retsius definitely get there faster. Sexual function recovery is no different at one year in the literature. Having said that, I will say just anecdotally, I do believe the patients have a faster return of um, potency with the retsius sparing approach because potentially there's less nerve traction, but that's not in the literature. And so it's definitely not a promise to a patient. There's some indications that the penis is less uh, shortened with a retsius sparing approach and definitely an interesting area for more investigation. Positive surgical margins are a concern and can't be really underestimated and have to be explained. Um, Meta-analysis varies out. Biochemical recurrence free survival is no different, but again, you know, in anything prostate cancer related, we need time. Um, we can't just measure it in a year. It has to be a lot longer than that. So I think it's a concern and it's definitely uh, a discussion to have with patients. Part of the reason why I think the anterior um, tumors have more positive margins is the prostate really opens up anteriorly. You're right on the capsule. Most of the time you're saving the dorsal vein. So you're so close to the prostate that if there is an anterior tumor, it's completely exposed and you can get a margin. And that's the area I'm talking about. So tips, um, for some reason when I suture, if I use two six-inch V-locks, I run out of uh, suture. So now I use one nine-inch and one six-inch. The second thing I do, and this is completely controversial because I have a colleague who's phenomenal and he doesn't like this, um, and I do. So I like one V20, which SH, a bigger needle, and one CV23, a smaller needle. Um, and I do this because the pelvis is so narrow and the space you're working in is so small that for me, having a bigger needle, I can just get a little bit better angle. Uh, from the left side versus the right side. Now, I still give methylene blue or indigo carmine um, so that I know if I have a urethral injury. And then I, early on, had a flexible cysto ready. And early days, we used to just pop it in too because it's a much more comfortable feeling to cut through the posterior bladder neck when you have a flexible cystoscope in there confirming for you that you're not coming through the trigone. It also is a good way to make sure you don't have a medium rule that you didn't expect. One other um, problem that I encountered quite frequently early on was putting in my final foley and it just wouldn't go through, which is a terrible feeling because you just arduously sown this anastomosis. So having a two-day catheter ready 
um, is always a good thing. And a lot of the times it turned out that my third arm, for whatever reason, was on the bladder and was compressing just a little bit. So if you're having trouble getting your final Foley in, try a Cudet and also check on where your third arm might be. The angle is just a lot different angle than an anterior approach where it goes straight in. So why try something new? You don't have to. If you already have great results, there are other anterior techniques like the hood technique that have similar results to red sea sparing. But if you want to try something new, this may be a very useful approach in certain patients. For example, kidney transplant patients where you want to stay completely away from that transplant kidney in the ureter, somebody with prior bladder surgery, um, a combination colorectal case where you want to leave the prostate on the rectum but save the bladder and avoid uh, urostomy, somebody who has a lot of mesh in that extraperitoneal space, or someone who's had a bladder rupture. You can avoid all that bladder takedown hassle by just going this approach. Again, I mentioned earlier, high-risk patients who are planning combination therapy um, can get on to the next step of their treatment if they're continent you know, within a month. And the last thing to remember, though, is positive margins really are a concern with rexia sparing. So it is important to counsel patients carefully with that and to select patients with, uh, with disease that is appropriate. I want to thank you all so much. And now we're going to go on to some questions and discussion. All right. Welcome back, everyone. And thank you, Dr. Green, for really just a phenomenal and, and excellent comprehensive review of the rescue sparing technique. That was just, you know, very, very informative. Uh, we'd like to start our next panel discussion. I'd like to welcome Dr. Peabody and Dr. John, both surgeons in the Hemiport Healthcare System that have extensive experience as well doing the Retsia sparing uh, technique. And uh, we have some questions coming through. So just to kind of start with, with a good one, there's a lot of surgeons that are doing, this is actually from Anonymous, so we don't know who said it, but a lot of surgeons are doing anterior approach. They want to know how feasible can they make this switch to doing Retsia sparing? And I'll, I'll open that up to anyone. Um, I'll, I'll jump in first. Um, I, I think it's feasible to do it. It takes some preparation. You have to kind of understand the videos. It, it's, you have to watch a number of them to, to be comfortable with it. Um, when I started doing it, uh, Dr. Menon and, and Dr. Jong were also doing it. Uh, we spent some time watching Dr. Bocciardi's uh, videos. We worked with Dr. Kunra from, um, uh, from Korea, who actually came and was a visiting professor and did a case. So we really familiarized ourselves with it. And then it is a little bit of a voyage of discovery. Uh, you want to pick good patients with, without big prostates or big median lobes, uh, preferably people. The, the anterior tumor thing is something I think that is, is real. You can probably correct for that by going more widely, but then you're probably getting into some bleeding that you'll have to control and you know, can be troublesome sometimes. Um, you know, nerve sparing in the beginning is a little bit dicier, I think, just like with any prostatectomy, so somebody is less concerned about that. But I think you can you can do it. Um, it it takes some getting used to with it. The bladder is up above and the urethra is down below. It's a strange look when you start uh, seeing it, but uh, going forward, you can you can accommodate to it. And it, you know, Dr. Green's uh, results she talked about with the the early continence being better and, you know, people who you pull the catheter out and they didn't wear a pad. Yeah, we saw that more when we started. Um, that's a real thing, but I think there is a convergence farther down. 
Excellent. Dr. Jung, do you have any tips for people that are you know, interested in, in taking, kind of making the switch from anterior to retro sparing? Any uh, helpful suggestions for their first couple of cases? Yeah, well, I absolutely agree with Dr. Peabody. Start with uh, like patient selection. That's one of the important things, like a, like a relatively smaller volume, smaller size of the prostate gland with a lower BMI patient. That's kind of like a, you know, the patient's uh, like a good candidate for uh, retrosparing as a, like a, you know, novice, like a retrosparing uh, as a surgeon, as Dr. Green uh, pointed out. Um, but the thing is, the uh, our goal is to take the prostate gland out. And anytime I always say that, like a, it's not like a failure of the surgery if you uh, convert to the anterior approach at any time. Means at least you can do kind of posterior dissection first to do a kind of very nice uh, like a atomal like a you know uh, lots of uh, blunt dissection for the uh, uh, mid gland to the apex uh, of the prostate gland before drop down the bladder and then the, do a nice posterior blood neck dissection before convert to the anterior. That technique is actually introduced by one of the Indian surgeons, Dr. Lawat, um, a kind of combined combination with a posterior and anterior approach. It's not like a, you know, the, like a bad procedure. It's actually, that's a really good for sudden, uh, like a high-risk uh, prostate cancer patient anyway. So convert that stage, or if you meet kind of like a rich, kind of the mid, um, the, your, uh, boundary, like you know, um, uh, some you know hard uh, time to do finish the case. Then uh, at, after the prostate removed, and then you can convert to the like uh, the anterior approach for the anastomosis kind of combination. It's not like a, a continence is not as good as a completely retrosparing sparing uh, technique, but still a bit better than uh, anterior a pure anterior approach. Uh, you know, uh, as uh, based on the, our experience, so. Like a conversion to the interior. Now, don't uh, feel bad or guilty uh, when you convert to the interior approach because our goal is to take the prostate gland out safely with a, like a negative surgical margin. Yeah, that's great. It does sound like there's a potential for a hybrid technique, maybe as, as a yeah. stepping stone for people that are interested in doing some Red Sea sparing. Mm -hmm. uh, my next question would be for Dr. Green, who mentioned the issue of urinary retention. This comes from the chat, another anonymous. Uh, uh, person posted this, which is with urinary retention uh, postoperatively, do you think this is just some edema and, and swelling and how is this managed and when does it typically resolve? It's a good question. I do think it is probably some edema, but I think there's something more to it because I just, you know, there should be edema with your anterior approach, especially with the bladder neck reconstruction. And I just don't see it as much. And I've talked to other colleagues and everyone kind of agrees. Yeah, there's, there's more retention with the retzia sparing. So maybe it's discoordination between the two sphincters, some partial preservation of the bladder neck sphincter. I'm not sure. Um, the way it's managed best, I think part of it is counseling the patients, letting them know what's, you know, it's, it's wrong if you can't pee and it's wrong if it hurts and you have to get back to the hospital in a certain amount of time. Otherwise, if they think, well, I'll get in the shower and just, you know, tough it out, that's when you get a, an astomotic leak. So part of it is getting them back to the hospital in time. We always do active voids or fill pull voids. You know, you fill it up, take the catheter out, make sure they can pee. Everybody does that. Um, the other thing that sometimes I'll do if I'm really worried about it or someone's just kind of struggling right when the catheter comes out is just give them a little Flomax for a week or so, you know, kind of weaken the sphincter intentionally. And uh, it, it always turns out okay, but they just need to know what to look for. Good, good points too. 
I think a lot of people have hesitations about the margins that everyone has has mentioned is you know a concern with with this technique. How are you trying to kind of mitigate those positive margins preoperatively? Are you using a lot of MRI? And sometimes if there's a, a kind of concern for ECE anteriorly, you say, you know what, this probably isn't the best for you. Is, is that something that kind of comes into your decision-making? For me? Oh, yes, I'm sorry, for Dr. Green. Yeah, I, so I do. I get MRI on everybody I possibly can because um, I think it's really helpful. And if there's a big anterior tumor with ECE, because, you know, I said in my video, the capsule, but we all know there's no capsule, right? There's the fibromuscular stroma there. There's kind of nothing. So if there's a big anterior tumor, maybe I'd counsel someone against retzia sparing unless um, I know they're going to be getting combination therapy. And I know one of the other speakers mentioned, you. I think it was Dr. Peabody, you can account for this. You can go a lot wider anteriorly. You can go through the dorsal vein. So you don't have to spare the dorsal vein. Um, yes, it bleeds a little bit more. And you can actually just sew that, just throw a stitch to sew it. But you can account for it if you have to. I, For me, what I started doing was, as I started doing retzia sparing, I was just looking at my margins. The more and more and more I did um, the posterior approach and the more I came around the sides on each case before I finally did retzia sparing to prove to myself that I wasn't going to get a margin posteriorly where I didn't normal. I didn't normally get one. So you can account for it if you have to. You have to be really intentional about it. Dr. Peabody, Dr. Jung, do you have similar opinions about how you select cases with the use of MRI and concern for anterior tumors? I, I like using MRI. I think it, it's useful. Um, and it, you can go pretty wide posteriorly, so I think you can get around tumors. And one might argue that it could be even better for people who have posterior disease because you really can get that that area opened up and freed up well. And when you do that lateral dissection and you have a good posterior plane, you're, you're able to get really as wide as you can get in the pelvis and still not be out of the pelvis, I think, with this approach. So it, it can be good. And, and I think, you know, with any learning curve, you're trying to figure out where the planes are. And it's 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 just tougher in the beginning, uh, whether you're doing it anterior or posterior. And uh, I think with experience, probably everybody will, the margin rates will get better uh, uh, going forward. And would you, what do you think? Yeah, well, I absolutely agree both uh, Dr. Green and Dr. Peabody that like, you know, but the most concerning part for the positive surgical margin gonna be like a, in general, like a posterior lateral, and then uh, Richard Sperling gonna be have uh, some benefit uh, to minimize the, like, a, you know, the, the negative margin from that area, like a seminal vascular area for the T3B disease or lateral for the like a lot of uh, like T3A disease. And then, uh, well, only thing is like, you know, I, I don't think it's a good idea to start with the anterior tumor, uh, you know, seeing on the MRI, I agree with uh, with you. But again, as Dr. Peabody mentioned that as you are doing more and more experience for the anterior side, I think you can control the amount of the tissue, how much you lift over on top of the plastic lens. So, and then another thing is the, I always mentioned that like, uh, please, overestimate the anterior apex because we're using a 30 up lens. So if you go straight, then that's gonna be like a kind of skiving into the apex of the plastic lens. Actually, plastic apex is like a 30 down angle. So you need to kind of adjust like a, uh, uh, feel like you're digging into the urethra uh, when you're using a 30 up lens to, uh, to go over the anterior apex. So where the kind of, one of the concerning part when you do a uh, retrospecting like an apical margin. So go over estimate 
to go outside of the capsule, feel like you're digging into the anterior uh, urethra, that is eventually going to go to like a, get into the uh, like a, a correct margin. So going to be like a help a little bit negative margin though. That's a great point. You know, Dr. Green, earlier we heard Dr. Jung talk a little bit about a, a hybrid technique, and this leans into a question that Dr. McElroy asked, which is, what do we think of, is the cause of the better continence with the resiosparian technique? Is it just preserving more of the natural support structures of the endopelvic fascia, as well as the periurethral support, because, you know, some of the retzius will get mobilized when we do a lymph node dissection. So what do you think is responsible for this better continence and earlier return of continence? I wish I knew. We're going to do a study on this. I think it's so fascinating. I think it has to be, um, you know, talking with my incontinence colleagues, it, maybe it's the urethral support. You know, there's a lot in the literature about urethral support, urethral hypermobility. So we're leaving everything anterior attached. Maybe we're also saving a little detrusor apron. Maybe there's some nerves running in that direction that we don't know about, right? Maybe there's some type of the vascularity in that area that we're preserving that actually is feeding the sphincter and it's making things different. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Um, I'm really fascinated by the hood technique and how the results from that are so similar. And that's again, you know, taking it all down and then kind of putting it back up the way you found yeah, it. With that's actually what I, what I do is, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but I, I do endopelvic sparing. So I don't enter on the endopelvic sparing yeah. I drop. So I'm, I'm sorry, please, please continue. No, you talk about, because I, I agree with you. I think what you're doing, for some reason, it recapitulates exactly what we're doing in Retzia sparing, but it's a totally different approach. So maybe it is the support. Maybe it's preserving the blood vessels. Tell me about your experience. Well, uh, let me ask Dr. Peabody and Dr. Zhang, okay. two, two surgeons who have so much more experience than, than me. What do you think is is the secret for of Retzia sparing that has such better continence outcomes? So I think this is a little bit like asking what gene causes prostate cancer. You know, um, there's a lot of them probably, and probably all this contributes. I, I've been fascinated by the observation that on cystograms, when we used to do those, uh, when the bladder base was above the pubic bone, the continence seemed to be better than when the bladder base was uh, behind the pubic bone, either the lower part of the bladder or or even beneath the pubic bone, that the continence appears to be to be better the higher up the bladder is. I, I bet there's some something to do with that. Um, although efforts, you know, to put in a bladder stitch maybe or maybe not make much difference. Um, but I, I think it's the support structures. You know, Alice talked today about the ten different things that uh, that we talk about in in terms of making the making a patient more likely to be continent. And we we're still having trouble kind of demonstrating that there's a particular thing or two. Uh, and you know there are probably subtle techniques in terms of how the tissues are handled and cauterized and, and pulled and pushed on, um, but I, I think it's it's kind of all of the above. Uh, at really, would you? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, first of all, I think uh, like a plan. I mean, what we talk about uh, before the first session, I think we I mean retrospering has all of them. So, blood neck, blood neck preservation. Dr. Green showed the. Fantastic uh, demonstration. That's one thing. And then another thing is like angulation of the urethra and the pulling up, kind of like you know, pull up the urethra and the elongate of the uh, intra, uh, the peritoneal length of the uh, urethra. And then I realized that uh, I had a one case that converted to the uh, uh, anterior approach. Uh, and then I realized that the pubic ligament was uh, totally preserved. And then you know, urethra length, what we uh, dissected was like a very long, like you've never seen that anterior approach like that long. 
So, and then the angulation, and then, you know, that's all like a supporting structures around the earth. Right? I think I agree with that, Dr. Green and Dr. Peabody. All right, and then one last quick question for Dr. Green. With teaching residents, with your partners and other people doing a lot of anterior and few people doing retzia sparing, do you feel like this is something that we can teach residents and they're able to learn this technique as well? Yeah, they are. They learn it faster than I ever did. I mean, it, you imagine you're a resident, so you're learning how to do this, right? You see an anterior approach, you see a retzius. So you learn how to sew upside down, you know how to start to sew, you know, anterior approach. Um, my residents do different parts of the case, you know, with a retzius sparing approach, the hardest part, like I said, is really coming around the shoulders like that. Maybe that's the part that's the last part that they learn, but Cutting the bladder neck, super easy, fun. Cutting the anterior bladder neck, no problem. Dissecting the seminal vesicles, sewing. It's great sewing practice. So it, I think it is very teachable and very learnable at any stage in your experience. Hey, Dr. Green, just a quick question. Hey, do you have a, a dry lab model that you're using to teach people? We haven't figured one out yet, but I'm trying to figure yeah. out how to hang a bladder up above. Uh, yeah, we, we have the models for the, the um, retropubic approach, but not... Not the other. I wonder if that would be a useful thing to help with the residents. No, I, I think it would be really useful. I think they would probably like it more than the stress of like, okay, sew this right now. Um, but then it's still fun, you know, the challenge. And they get to see me struggle with it too, which is humbling <laughs> for everyone, you know. But it's kind of good to see that it, there's a learning curve for everyone who's doing it. Great. Well, thank you all so much. Really, it was it was great hearing the, the wealth of experience we have about the Retzia Sparing technique and everyone's kind of tips and tricks and how we could potentially take the, the leap from being a Retzius obliterating to Retzius Sparing prostatectomists. With that being said, I'll hand it over to Arvin George, who will wrap up tonight's skills session. Well, thank you everybody for a really dynamic and educational discussion. I truly really learned a lot from that last panel. Today, we've heard from expert clinicians and robotic surgeons and how techniques uh, on different techniques that can help us continue to improve our outcomes. We know that this is a difficult nut to crack and one that will continue to provide effort to improving. We hope that you not only learn different approaches, but think about whether this approach may be appropriate to integrate within your own surgical technique and improve continence outcomes for your own patients. We thank our own music surgeons for giving their time, but also to Dr. Kirsten Green for sharing her expertise in an approachable and practical manner. Finally, I would like to thank the coordinating center and staff physicians, uh, whom without, without them, none of this would be possible. Their tireless work to help curate and execute the content delivered today is apparent. So thank you for all of your hard work. Thank you again for spending your evening with us. And we look forward to seeing our music members in person in a couple of days. And Dr. Green, you're always welcome. Thank you.